So I think the blood's running now. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I, I All of us put this podcast become way more important. <laughs> Welcome back to Center Ed Teaching. We're back uh, in your feed this week with another live podcast, and this one being kind of a meta exploration of the digital world as we create information in the digital world and then share it in that digital world. Um, but because we want to talk about this with the connection of youth, um, wanted to not just talk with educators, but also talk with educators who are parents, who are kind of working um, on two different ends, I guess, of this world that we're living in. So joining us for the first time in a while again is Denise. Hey. <laughs> hey, Denise. <laughs> and back again is Roberta. Roberta, it's so lovely to see you. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> and Roberta, <laughs> you have brought a special guest with you. I, sh- you, I sure have. Do, do you want to introduce her? Yes, we have with us today longtime listener, first-time caller, Janet Langer, my mother, She's the parent, uh, thank you, yes, appropriate applause. Hello, Janet. Hello. Uh, She is the parent of a 20th century kid and the grandparent of 21st century kids, Uh, and so I thought it would be fun to have her uh, joining us today. Um, I have also brought ambient sounds of family life because (laughs) I am doing the pod from uh, my vacation in Arizona visiting grandma and grandpa with the little kids. So um, from time to time, you'll just, you know, hear the sounds of Tucson um, free of charge. You don't have to pay any extra to, to hear those sounds. <laughs> Love it. Um, so the first thing that I, I guess I want to start with our conversation is talking about when we say this digital world, this digital age, how are we defining it? Where does it exist? Is it the technology? Is it the platforms? I mean, a lot of it revolves around a screen, right? There's the TV for a streaming network, there's TV for video games, there's the phone for games of their own, there's the social media that's on the phone, but then there's also the computer screen. Um, So kind of what are the parameters of this world and how as parents and educators do we define them and work with kids within them? That's a great question. I, I think that like what's coming to my mind first is the idea of personalization and that within um, the digital space is this idea that everyone can have their own personal interaction with with a screen or with a digital space. Um, the, sort of the idea of the uh, you went from when you when Pizza Hut went from the pizza you could order the pizza family style everyone has to agree on what goes on the pizza versus when they had the personal pan option and you could design and customize your own personal pizza. Um, now we can design our own our own spaces, whether they're entertainment spaces or our workspaces, um, our TV our TV watching spaces or our game spaces. They're all individualized. You know, I look across uh, the room and I have three kids on three different iPads, and they're all hanging out together, um, but they're also all engaged in their own personal and private activity. Denise, do you want to maybe speak? kind of in your experience, both in schools and with your kids, what the digital age looks like for what your kids are doing and how you maybe established boundaries or maybe you haven't established boundaries. It's been interesting for me because um, as a 20th century person raising a 21st century, like raising 21st century children and working with 21st century children, there was a lot of learning that I had to do. 
because I had to recognize that what I might hold as my personal um, set of understandings and biases, like, they don't apply to their students, mm-hmm. right? And so they're coming at it from a different um, vantage point. And if I didn't understand that, I was um, ready to say, hey, what's wrong with that? Or let me limit that, or let me not understand that, versus, well, wait, what does it really look like from your vantage point so that mm-hmm. we can come to some agreements? Oh, no, that's not true. So I can <laughs> learn to live with some of the things that it is going to be uh, that might have to be a compromise for me, right? Because I, while I might personally hold something um, one way, I might need to have a, a little bit more um, flexibility because of the space that these 21st century kids are coming from. And so for my children, that was not pretty upfront, um, but it's a lot more understanding now mm-hmm. because I understand that to, to, to them, the things that, um, that are completely normal, like having multiple devices on at the same time for me to focus on being able to play this. Wait, NBA. can you just stop for a moment and yeah. paint a picture with your words of this multiple device thing? <laughs> okay, picture a living room. Comfy couch, um, TV going, like the, the house TV going. Okay. Know, right? Because, mind you, there are other children in the room, or okay. not even children, other people in the room watching that. Then we have an iPad, two iPads, um, a tablet, and a phone going so that um, my youngest, who's 11, can focus on an NBA game and, and making sure that he like drains this three-pointer. And so um, one iPad is playing music and another iPad is kind of like, um, you know, the friends calling in and mm-hmm. checking in, like, how are you doing? How's it going? How's it going? And I'm just thinking, oh, this, this, this can't be, this can't be good. Like, this, this, is, this is not okay. <laughs> and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm trying to be understanding. So just out of curiosity, I'm not saying I do this often, but one day I walk by and turn off one, just to see what would happen. <laughs> and when I say that, it was like, Mom, wait, and I'm thinking to myself, it's five different things going. How can you notice this one? But that impacted the experience. And then it kind of brought me back to the time when I could only do my algebra homework with music in the background. Mm-hmm. And my parents just not understanding, and I was just ruining the opportunity that education was providing for me. And just realizing that, you know, sometimes things just occur differently because we are moving in different spaces. And so different experiences offer us um, different, um, different avenues of success. And so obviously that makes us feel like, yeah, this will work again if I do it again. So I want to extend a question to all three of you that maybe follows up from what you're saying, Denise. But I mean, I guess something that I'm thinking about is when you phrase it like watching an NBA game, watching whatever's on the TV, friends coming in, it's not so much the technology that's the definition of this, but the flow of information mm-hmm. that you, you can consume so much information simultaneously as long as you have the technology to do so. And so being cut off from that information feels like you're being limited mm-hmm. in the world. So is this isn't a fully formed question, but I guess I'm wondering whether we're thinking about as educators or parents – is there a limiting of that information flow that you want to do because you can't control all that information that is experienced or that some might be too much? Or is there a sense that if we're thinking about where the world is going and this flow of information is going to be so much a part of the world, is it a disservice to cut off from that information? I don't know if that question makes sense, but 
No, it does. It completely does. And to some extent, yes, it is a bit of a disservice because at what point you are, um, I know for me, working with teachers, um, my conversation is often, this is the safe space for students to take things, like try things mm-hmm. on, to practice. And so if we're going to be so rigid around what we feel is like the, um, the charge to limit and, mm-hmm. um, and curate, well, then when do the students learn how to do it for themselves? Because mm-hmm. we want them to eventually be critical producers, not just critical consumers. We want them to, to speak in the world, mm-hmm. not just continually take it in. And so but when do they practice that? And so if we don't provide opportunities for them to make mistakes because they have too much information to mm-hmm. kind of show them what it's like when you have too little information, mm-hmm. then when do they begin to um, self-manage some of these um, problems? Janet, Roberta, would you guys agree with that? Yeah, and I want to build, like, we talk we talk about 21st century uh, education and 21st century skills. One of the major things that we talk about is that, that in the 20th century, the whole um, le- the learning process and the focus of learning was about getting information. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, you can chime in here, too, but, Mom, but um, when I had to do my research paper in high school, Mrs. Horn required that we do 75 note cards and we would go to the library every day during school and we would look for our sources and I would have to go to the card catalog and that takes like 15 minutes to Mm -hmm. find your book in the card catalog and then follow it around the library until I can find the book and then I would sit down and open the book and search through the table of contents and then the bell would ring. So then, right, so, and the whole, the entire hour-long class was about finding information, and my entire research paper was a list of information that I had found. But when technology evolves at the rate that it's evolved, right now we have all of that information at the tip of our fingers. We just say, hey, Google, or hey, Siri. You don't actually have to even type anything anymore, and you can get any kind of information that you want. Mm -hmm. And so education in the 21st century becomes not about finding information, but it becomes about what you do with information. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a very visceral experience watching um, my son, Danny. So Denise and I, um, we have this fact with perfect contestants. Oh, contestants. We're the perfect participants (laughs) on today's pod. Because Denise, how old is is your oldest? Uh, 22. So she has 22. And then how old is Micah? Um, Micah's 18, and right. um, Jesse is uh, 11. Right, so we have 22, 18, 11. My oldest is 11, and then I have a 4 and a 2, right? So we have sort of like from childhood to young adulthood, from, from early early childhood to young adulthood, covered in our parenting expectation and our parenting experience. So high five, D. High five. Um, right. I have a fur <laughs> child, if that adds a divergent perspective. You have a what? A fur child? A fur baby. <laughs> yes, well, we're, we'll be sure to ask you about how that's going. <laughs> so I'm watching Danny, my son, um, and he was about nine years old, laying on the floor of our apartment in New York City, writing with a number two pencil in a green marble composition notebook. And I asked him, what are you doing? And he said, I'm working on my homework. I said, oh, great. What's your homework? What kind of homework do you have? He said, I have vocabulary. I thought, oh, okay, well, it's good to learn new words. And as soon as I was finished, I said, okay, we'll keep going. And he said, okay, great. And maybe his um, word was multicultural or some sort of like a poly, uh, polysyllabic word. 
and and he just reaches out for his phone and he said, "Hey Siri, you know, how do you spell multicultural?" And she told him, and he wrote it down. And I said, "Hey Siri, what's the definition of multicultural?" And she told him, and he wrote it down. And he said, "Oh, good, my homework is done." And I just thought, yeah, this, there's a disconnect here, right? Because this is a 20th century assignment in a 21st century world. And if I may say, I, I'm skeptical at how much he would learn mm. about what multicultural is or really how to spell it when he doesn't have to look at the word to write it down and copy it. Mm-hmm. In, my, in my experience, it's the doing of it that makes you remember and learn it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that brings up interesting questions. And so are when we're talking about, you know, developing um, skills and students for the world that they're going to be in, does that mean that they no longer are repositories of information because all that information is at a fingertip? And do we devalue that? They're seeing something problematic about that to say that, you know, the spelling of these words, you don't necessarily need to learn because you can just ask Siri, like there should be that building of knowledge. Um, And I guess I want to take that point and maybe move in a slightly different direction because I think it's related to something else that's seen. Because with these online communities that we have, you know, people are more likely to look up the things that they want to look up or engage in topics that they want to look up. And so this idea of an echo chamber which may have been before restricted by geographic regions, church congregations, um, what have you, now seems to be this more insular online community where you can look up something like multicultural, but that doesn't necessarily get you embodied in a multicultural society. So I wonder, is there a concern about this echo chamber effect and how do we help kids navigate that or is that something that can be navigated because i'm thinking again of your examples where you have people together with everyone with a screen in front of them doing their individualized own thing like i wonder if there's some kind of filtering of information there that could be problematic that's um it's an interesting thing it's interesting that you bring that up because often you will find school conflicts that are now based on things or outcomes from the chamber. So you might have a student say something and then it gets taken on, it grows and takes a life on of its own online and that actually shows up the next day at school or by the end of the week, it's a thing at school. And so now you have um, student support teams showing up to try to, to, to help them get that and, and, and resolve some of those, um, some of those conflicts. And because, to your point, people don't recognize that anything you say, it, you're saying to a larger group of people than you think. Mm-hmm. And so that's where some of the, the limiting understanding of, like, what is going on in the 21st century is mm-hmm. that's, so that's when you get the 21st century, but then you get the kids part, right? Yeah. Because they are still children. And so they are only able to see what's right in front of them. They may not necessarily see the nuances or the implications mm. of, like, a, an immediate action. Um, and as an educator, it's, it's tough because you can see these things, maybe not necessarily because of your, it, it impacted you firsthand, but because, you know, as an adult, you're able to kind of say, hey, these are some of the things you may want to pay attention to. But oftentimes students will stumble into mm-hmm. um, things unintentionally and then are so surprised by 
just how big it got. Yeah, and I think, I mean, turning to you a little bit, Roberta, and you as well, Janet, I think building off that previous idea, there's also these interpersonal dynamics that are distanced over this digital space. It's not saying something to someone and having them respond in that moment. It's almost that you're saying it into this void, even though it is someone who's an individual. And with that distancing, it seems that the rhetoric sometimes online can be uh, more harsh or more problematic or more likely to be misunderstood, even if the best intentions are behind it. And so I wonder how are we working with youth and with students to to navigate that? Is that something that's done in the home? Is that something that's done at school? Does it have to be both? Because if we think about the current climate that we're in, that seems so much at the root of our problems that are being held in online discourses. I think that what you're saying goes goes straight to um, the point that I was making earlier, which is that it demands that our curriculum change, um, mm-hmm. that the, the the rate in which technology has made an impact on our culture, um, but not yet an impact on what and how we're teaching, I would say generally, I think definitely pockets, and there are certainly teachers or schools who are taking this on very, very robustly. Um, but uh, on a whole, you know, where are the required units in um, the required units of study in you know communicating online or in understanding um, bias online or in understanding the echo chamber or the digital impact in, um, the digital footprint that we make? You know our kids. I think it's like ninth graders today who are 14 years old were born the same year that Facebook was born. They don't have the a concept of a world that is different than this. I remember taking um, my kids to a hotel and they asked to watch a, shirt, a certain show and I said, oh, it's not on right now. And he and Danny looked at me like, I don't understand what you're saying. Right. Like, like How is it not on demand? On all the time. We right. can always just pick and choose whatever we want to watch whenever we want to watch it. Like he was like, like, like dumbfounded. He, he just mm-hmm. didn't have a concept for, for sort of the, the schedule of, of normal TV without a DVR or without the internet. And so there's a certain, um, the, a certain way of life and a certain way that they're thinking. And yet our school has not caught up with it. Our education system has not caught up with it. And as adults, having gone through our own 20th century experience mm-hmm. leading into our adulthood, we certainly have feelings about this is good or this is bad or this is right or this is wrong, when really it just, it, it is. These are tools, and it's about how we use the tools and we can educate our kids and how to use them and how to not, and when, how, how and when to use them or not. So, I mean, I guess, like, what I'm hearing here is, when we're thinking about what does this mean in education, it means that there needs to be a curricular reform in terms of whether it's a class or whether it's just awareness of this digital space, but that there's also a responsibility in the home to try to help understand these more individualistic interactions and work through that. And so I guess the the question that I have is that seems such a naughty question because when you're talking about working through bias, maybe in stories in the digital space, does that mean that that teacher is the arbiter of what knowledge works and what doesn't? Or is there uh, agreed upon curriculum from the community? I mean, I, 
it just seems that there are such difficult questions that maybe schools haven't caught up because I don't know if we have the answers to or, or if we will, but maybe you three have the answers. <laughs> I wonder if the answers is it the questions. Though? Right. Is it the that was questions? a good one, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, I think that the, 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 the opportunity here is to ask the questions because I don't know that we'll ever come to consensus because we've had such different experiences. Like, it's, um, it's very real to have a situation where you have a body of teachers that have one set of experiences, a body of parents or a community that have a different set of experiences, administrators yes. that have a different set of experiences, and then the students themselves have a different set of experiences. But we're all supposed to be in the same learning space mm-hmm. and then um, come to some shared understandings about how we're going to move collectively digitally. So that's... Man, <laughs> you talk about the best place to have lots of uh, miscommunication and yeah. lots of um, misunderstanding, a lot of missed expectations. So it's, it's, are we having the conversations? Are we having, are we looking to, um, to put the questions out there and be okay with collectively coming up with some working understandings, not even definitions, just working understandings, because as evidenced by our world is ever-changing so you know to say oh great we wrote the rule book let's publish it like yikes by the time it goes to press you know the rules have changed so as the world is changing as you pointed out i like though that the world in some ways isn't changing because i think the conversation that you're talking about doesn't happen in the digital space right the conversation between administrators teachers parents students i think happens in person right yes to talk about this digital space yes yeah. Yeah, because there is there is there is a move to begin to have these conversations in the same medium mm. that it's going to eventually live. So why not have the make the way by walking actually digitally? You're just more progressive than I am, <laughs> Um I mean, I guess we've covered most on most things on the agenda, but this conversation still feels so untapped and so rich with other questions. Um, I I guess I want to hear, I have other questions, but I guess I'd like to hear final thoughts because as we've tried to, we laid out four sections to talk about in this podcast, but they've overlapped so much that we've touched on each of them without really being able to fully probe them. And I think that's in some ways what's so problematic and difficult about this topic is that there are so many issues existing simultaneously that it's actually hard to parse out and talk about what it means. So I think maybe kind of a summary of, Oh, Janet. Yes. You wanted to say something. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, not at all. But it occurs to me that in all of this, the thing that we are missing in this digital age is the ability to memorize Um, things from the old days. My father, who is pushing 90, can recite poetry that he learned when he was in grade school. And he will often throw out a verse of poetry or a line that he read, oh, I read it somewhere, Mm -hmm. that is appropriate to any given situation. And I I think that, that with the digital age we're so engrossed in, looking at what's right in front of us that we don't see where it came from Mm -hmm. and how do I identify the source 
And maybe it's an incredible piece of literature that we can't pull out because we haven't bothered to look beyond what is right here in front of us. Just saying. No, no I, I think that's a really valid point. One of the things that I always think about is, I mean, there's a lot of quotes that people use online, decontextualizing them from where they came from, one of them being excerpts from Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken, mm -hmm. right? And so parts of that poem get misappropriated as saying that you have to take this unconventional path, whereas Robert Frost is saying is that, no, you can choose what path that you won't, but there's this like missed opportunity, which is such a more nuanced concept, but without the value of that. Um, that's lost. Sorry, that's my own rant for no, my and, love of Robert Frost. You know but. what I, I was thinking, right, about the, the coming back to the idea about critical producers, right? Because how often do students create, but they create in like a medium like Snapchat, where it, mm. it disappears after a, a finite amount of time, mm -hmm. versus, um, you know, having an opportunity to say, memorize, uh, to be or not to be. Uh, I that remember that. Question. That is the question. Whether it's noble in the mind, I'm sorry, but I, uh, you know, I, yes, heart, yeah. that was part of drama, um, middle school drama for me. So I will never forget, um, you know, that um, that piece of Shakespeare, and that will always be with me. And um, as a competitive speaker, I have used that in speeches, and those speeches have been recorded and shared digitally. Mm -hmm. And so I have many people who have referred back to some of the quotes that I've shared because it was captured, but it was from a piece of, um, of literature. So to your point, Janet, it's a beautiful thing to kind of um, really think about what is the um, digital space look like because we are being more deliberate and intentional in our, um, in our classrooms and in our learning experiences. Roberta, do you have any final thoughts you want to share? Yeah, I feel like one of the things that we haven't yet tapped on are some of the challenges that are unique to parenting in the 21st century. And and I think that um, we were talking about it a little bit earlier, Denise, when you were saying that that our, our teachers have had different experiences than um, our, our principals, than our students, that, that we're all having, our, we've all had our own personal experience with the digital space, but um, none of our experiences are the same. And we keep looking at each other from our vantage point and not the other person's vantage point. But as a parent, that's really hard because, you know, I grew up in the TV generation, not in the internet generation. Um, but my kids are definitely growing up as digital natives. I'm looking at them right now, and my two-year-old and my 11-year-old are, are sharing headphones and watching it, watching the show on the iPad, right? My challenge is that how do you parent somebody where I'm responsible for their welfare, I'm responsible for their well-being, and for creating the rules and policies in our family that will help them to grow into um, responsible and, and positive contributing adults? But I've never been through these, I never had to make these choices. I never, you know, it's, you know, it's in some ways it's easier if the problem is about sex because, you know, everybody has had to go through that at some point. It's easier um, in the last 40, 50 years if the problem was about drugs because we know what sort of works and doesn't work with drugs because I experienced that myself, you know. Um, I did not experience drugs myself. I was just gonna okay, but you know what? I did. Yep. Well, I was gonna. Go, I was gonna go with you. I was going with you. Okay. And sitting next to your mother. I'm just saying. You know, we're experiencing all of these things at the same time, except that I'm, uh, you know, I'm 42 and my kid is 11. So how do we negotiate these things? And parents 
um, with the, the the onset of the internet um, is a is a wonderful blog space for every parent to become an expert and to tell every other parent what they should and shouldn't do and find every psychologist that should say everything on the rainbow of things that you can and cannot do, you can and cannot do them. And I think that, that it's really challenging. Should you be limiting screen time? Should kids below the age of 11 be on the internet? Mm -hmm. Should what are what are these spaces? Um, so I'll just say this is my final thought. That was my that was my exposition. This is my final thought. Um, my final thought is the internet is not going away. Mm -hmm. um, technology is not going to suddenly become less important or less vital to our daily lives. Um, if if anything, it's going to continue to become more. And so we need to be preparing, in my opinion our kids to negotiate these spaces as independent and critical thinkers. So in our family, we don't limit screen time, but we do monitor behavior. Mm -hmm. So when you're online all the time and your behavior is crazy and you're disrespectful and you're not helpful and you can't have, you don't have any self-control to start or stop, that's when we cut it off. Um, hopefully one or two steps before that. But to say that, like, I really want my kids to grow up and... Um, be able to have self-control, to be able to be critical thinkers, to be able to negotiate those spaces um, with that mindset of, like, I turn it on, I turn it off, I choose. And I need to be able to sense in my mind and in my body when it's kind of taking over. We call it crazy eyes. <laughs> like, all that time on, on, on gaming or something like that. Like, okay, now it's time to take a break, and maybe sometimes for a few days. Mm -hmm. um, but... But my concern with limiting, um, strict limitations on time is one, my ability to really enforce that. Um, and, and two, what happens when there isn't a parent as the filter, the parent as the decider, you can or you can't. Um, I think that that's just sort of like a recipe for rebellion, for, for technological rebellion later on. If, if I may give a historic and, and historical, um, comment, if, and I don't, <laughs> As long as it's not hysterical. Perspective. perspective. Um, it's, it seems to me that some of these these um, difficulties in understanding our, our children and our children's children comes with every generation, and every parent has to figure out how to meet the new things because back in my parents' days, we had World War II and and the depression and coming out of it and they didn't have any tv in those days so tv was new for them and going going to movies wasn't but going to color movies was and i didn't go to a movie until i was 16 partially because i grew up in alaska and we didn't have a theater but no <laughs> um so so this is not new as the Proverbs say, there is nothing new under the sun, or maybe it's Ecclesiastes. <laughs> so um, I guess my point is that everybody has to learn how to parent mm -hmm. at some point and set boundaries within the parameters of the current um, climate of growing up. Yeah, and if I can just put one summarizing comment on something that you all have echoed that I think as someone who only has a fur child um, and doesn't have a digital device for that fur child, like some people do, <laughs> um, um, is you're kind of 
it sounds like this i this kind of lays a fair attitude where it's this is the world that they're live that they're living in and i want to support my child in that world but at some point i can't be the filter because i can't always be the filter and the child has to learn how to navigate that and so in some ways it's less about control or monitoring or regulation as much as it is about support and while I don't think that's a solution to all these problems, I think that that's a really interesting frame, whether we're educators or whether we're parents thinking about attacking this space instead of saying this is something that we have ownership and control, but rather this is something that you are navigating and we are kind of the training wheels of that. Yeah, we get to shift. We get to shift because as parent educators, we get to acknowledge that um, we are figuring it out as we go. And so while we might have a stance as a parent, that as an educator, we definitely have to hold um, more of a a working space than just okay. This is my de- this is my decision as a parent, mm-hmm. and that's important because it's very easy to slip into a mom role yeah. um, in the classroom, and that's not um, that's not always helpful. So I think this is the topic that we're gonna we're gonna say something, Roberta. Yeah, I just want to clarify: is your fur pet? Is your fur child a pet? Is it like a dog or like? It, it is a beautiful. Just, I he's a beautiful how, dog. Okay. He's a dog. Okay. Yes. Right. I, I, I was lost a little bit, but I'm caught up now. Yeah. No, he's a beautiful <laughs> sixty-pound lab mix um, who loves to sleep between my legs. Um, it's a little TMI, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us on the pod this week, and we'll be back with uh, more stuff about the digital age and more educational issues in the weeks to come. Bye. Bye.